Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. I am the co-host Helen Hillix. Today our host is Chris Reese, and we have the inimitable Margaret Lamar with us today, who is the um, strategic director of strategic initiatives for the Children and Nature Network, and we're so excited to have you here today. Margaret, we'll get back to you in a moment. First, I'm going to tell the people a little bit about what you do. And then Chris is going to read the news, and then we will start our interview. So are you ready to step away from video screens and get outside? Do you support kids to do this too? The Children and Nature Network is taking this on. Join us to be inspired. Join us to hear Margaret Lamar, the Director of Strategic Initiatives, Children and Nature Network, who tackles the huge issue of children's sedentary lifestyles and their often unmet need to play in nature with host Chris Reese and co-host Helen Hillix. Our children are experiencing alarming rates of stress, depression, obesity, diabetes, and other health risks associated with sedentary lifestyles, per many researchers. At the same time, children are increasingly disconnected from the natural world. This disconnect is more prevalent in lower-income urban neighborhoods, which you might expect, where health risks are already high. A growing body of scientific evidence suggests that the creation of nature-rich urban environments can help improve overall health, creativity, and social cohesion. The Children in Nature Network is doing something about this. Lamar works in communities across the U.S. to connect children to outdoor learning and play. This will require support on many levels, including parents to intervene with ourselves and take action for our children to be in nature. Yes, we need an inner revolution. Listen and call in if you can. It will be enlightening, informative, and inspiring. And take it away, Chris, for the news. Thanks so much, Helen, and thanks, Marta, for joining us today. Well, Thank there you, is a Chris. Lot of news. I know for all of us who pay attention to the news, uh, some of us feel a little bit disturbed. Um, some of us may feel very vindicated if we're in favor of what the current administration is doing. We may feel like finally right on, you know, my guy's at it. Um, but what we do know is that it's clear that there's a lot of upset across our country and there still is a lot of division. So, you know, at the Inner Revolution, we are constantly um, offering support for all of us to first go inside and look at ourselves to see where we're separating and to see where we can find some common ground. Um, as I looked at the interrevolutionary news today, something really jumped out at me. We have a story that's both tragic and heartbreaking, but it's also very inspiring. Over the weekend in St. Louis, almost 200 gravestones were desecrated at the Shed Shell um, Emmett Cemetery. And as, as sorrowful and heartbreaking as this event is, something beautiful came out of it. U.S. Muslim Americans helped raise over $113,000 in a single day to help restore this historic Jewish cemetery. Donation page was started by Muslim advocate Linda Sessor and Tariq Al-Masidi. And I'd like to read for you a quote from Time Magazine. This is really beautiful. Um, El-Masidi said, We just want to send a message that whatever haters and extremists try to destroy, we will rebuild. Seeing this happening was just disgusting. It shows that when you put politics aside, we share humanity together. And to us in the inner revolution, this really personifies oneness, where we want to not only be our brothers and sisters keeper, but we want to be our brother and sister because we all feel each other's pain. And the fact that, you know, the Muslims who are under so much attack right now and feel so scared and, um, you know, have good reason to, to possibly retreat into self-protection are coming out publicly, raising money, and supporting other groups. So it's really beautiful. It's, you know, it's a testament to the human spirit. You know, it's a great article. News, in additional news, we're really seeing that people all across the country are fired up and they're speaking out to support humanity. And so a good thing that's come out of, of this um, turbulent political time is that there's a lot more activism. But what many of us are seeing is that sometimes we find ourselves suddenly on the same side or becoming allies with those who we might have previously separated from. 
I had a really good lesson in this myself because uh, there was an article within the past few days in uh, the Washington Post by Edward Price. He's a former CIA analyst, National Security Council spokesperson. He's got over 10 years in the CIA. And he recently resigned because he feels like the current administration is not taking um, the analyst community seriously. And what I found myself was all of a sudden, you know, me on the same side as the CIA. And in the past, honestly, there are many times where I might have separated from the CIA and felt very judgmental and critical of their actions. And so here Edward Price is, you know, my, my hero for the moment because he's standing up for what I believe. So it's, you know, it's a great lesson for all of us to really challenge our opinions and challenge our judgments. And the other thing that's come out of all of this is that um, a very conservative Republican, again, who some of us might have separated from in the past, John McCain, is also um, in the news a lot talking about how important it is for us to take um, the information that's coming from the intelligence community seriously. And, you know, I keep going back to interrevolutionary platform. And to me, this speaks of accountability because here in the United States, we often don't take into consideration how far-reaching our military and political might is. And the decisions that we make to go to war, to send troops overseas, to support regimes, to topple regimes, they have impacts for decades. And these CIA analysts are among those who are providing information that, you know, in my mind, we don't need to pray that that information is legitimate and neutral and that the people making decisions to send in the army to fund um, research, to fund uh, different elements and different forces in other countries, that they can be confident that the information is neutral and not politically, not politically motivated or, you know, even worse, motivated for some economic reason. So I find myself rooting for the CIA right now, which is something I probably can never expect to do. Um, and last You're but certainly not least, in the news this week, we, we see that there's more debate over Planned Parenthood. And there was a big ruling in Texas where a judge issued an injunction in favor of Planned Parenthood. And this ruling provided legal guidance to state that um, Texas actually did not have the legal right to cut off Medicaid funding to some of the Planned Parenthood groups. Um, so, of course, this is going to be challenged. The Texas State Attorney General has already said that they would. And, again, you know, we find ourselves, for those of us who are happy about this moment, saying, right on, you know, our side won. And, and I find myself jumping right into that, and it is the energy of separation. And, of course, we all have things that matter to us and our passions, and we want to see that um, hopefully our elected officials support them. And, then, and, and while we're in that process, we do want to try to stay away from separating from each other. And the IR, the interrevolution.org, is sponsoring an event on April 8th. It's called Revolutionizing the Abortion Conversation, a giant step towards the unity we desperately need. And this is an event that's going to be available. Um, you can join us from anywhere in the world. And we'll be fostering a conversation from both sides of the, um, of the uh, uh, issue to really talk about how we feel. You know, there's so much stigma. It's not a simple issue. But we believe in the inner revolution that if we can come together and we can really have an honest conversation and we can open up our hearts to find compassion, then we might be able to find a solution that would um, withstand the, um, the changes in the political agenda of, wh of whoever's in office. So we're here supporting that unity. So that's the news of the inner revolution. There are plenty more stories that I could share. We have just... There's so much going on, but um, I'd like to get into it right now and, and talk to Margaret. Um, Margaret, maybe you could first start out by telling us a bit about your organization and what you do and what you do for the organization. And if you would include in that, please, for us, how you get your funding and how you started. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, so I, I'm the Director of Strategic Initiatives for the Children and Nature Network. And the Children and Nature Network is an organization that really seeks to um, change the way that we are related to nature. And 
we really inspire, um, we look to inspire um, a, a, an entire worldwide grassroots network to, um, to provide access to nature for children so that they have access to nature in their everyday lives. And um, my role in that is to um, really think about what are some of the most key ways that we can orient ourselves and orient our cities and our places and our and all of the people across the world to um, uh, orient toward that connection to nature. And how we do that is through um, initiatives that we have. We have a research library, but we also have grassroots um, collaborations across the world. And we also have family nature clubs and natural leaders who are trained as youth leadership mentors in their communities. And we're also looking at spaces and the, the ways in which children have physical access to spaces on green schoolyards and in parks and how cities can think about integrating nature into their spaces, but also how we're going to change our relationship to that and how we're going to participate in nature is something that we spend a lot of focus on. So we partner across um, many sectors. Um, I mentioned where we work in several countries, but really focused on the U.S. And um, in terms of our funding, we um, have a collection of funding, um, largely funded through foundations. Um, we're a nonprofit, and so we are largely funded through foundations, but we also have some government grants and some very generous individual donors. Beautiful. Yeah. You know, there are so many grass, grassroots movements that are uh, taking hold right now, and, and you folks are farther down the path than many of us are. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you built it, what you ran into, you know, did you run into any kind of ego issues where you had to, you know, step back and um, find some common ground? Could you talk to us about that and how you built the movement? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm beholden to those who came before me who really set the foundation. So um, about uh, 11 years ago now, um, there was an author named Richard Louvre who wrote a book called Last Child in the Woods. And when he wrote the book, he assumed that, um, you know, a, a, it would be a successful book, he hoped. But what he didn't, uh, um, what he wasn't prepared for, what no one was prepared for was the way that it resonated with so many people across the world. And so that book really started people's awareness and really sparked people's awareness around this disconnect between children and the natural world and what that, um, the implications of that for health and academic outcomes and just children playing. And th this was at a time 11 years ago, imagine when cell phones were starting to become more popular, um, kids were really becoming more and more plugged in, and now they're certainly plugged in. Um, so, so that resonance became this groundswell that we built upon. And there were some founders who came together around the issue and said, we hope that this book's success is not just um, a moment in time, but is actually something that can be sustained. And so they developed the Children in Nature Network. And the Children in Nature Network was founded 10 years ago. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary. And when that happened, there were some folks in the field who said, you know, we've been doing environmental education for a long time. Um, you didn't found you aren't the founders of the movement. We've been doing this for decades, mm. and you know, and it's so true. And so, you know, I think that when when we say that we are leading a movement or you know started a movement or something, uh, we we really honor those who have been. You know, Teddy Roosevelt really started the movement. Potentially, I mean, there's lots of people you can you can point to who started the movement of connecting children to nature. Um, and we are just really here to provide a platform of support, encouragement, a convening role, and really help the, continue the grass fire, continue that grassroots interest and organizational interest too, which we can also talk about, but really thinking about how does this 
not just live in environmental education? How does this not just live at the National Park Service or in city parks, departments, but how does it really become relevant to public health, to transportation, to all of the folks who are doing such amazing work in the spiritual realm and the psychological realm? And doctors are really showing up. Um, so th- there really is, uh, it is amazing how when you create uh, a space uh, where all are included, all are welcome, um, and this and integrate an issue that's as key to our survival as nature is, if, when you integrate that into all of these um, silos or different kinds of cross-sector partnerships, it really starts to take off in new ways. Can you talk a little bit, Margaret, about some a specific example of something that you have co-created in this collaborative way with all these different agencies and sure. uh, what, what it actually looks like and how it operates? I can. There are, there are so many examples. And I'll use the, um, the current, uh, one of our big current projects right now is called Cities Connecting Children to Nature. And it is a partnership It's an interesting partnership between the Children and Nature Network, which is obviously grassroots and interested in children's connection to nature, and the organization, the National League of Cities. So the National League of Cities has an institute for youth education and families, and they do all kinds of amazing work around uh, financial literacy and juvenile justice reform and health disparities and all kinds of wonderful things in out-of-school time and early child care. But they hadn't really taken on nature as a topic and as a, as a need for social change. And so we um, put, our, put our, our organizations together um, raised some funding from a uh, from a foundation, the JPB Foundation, and we're able to really uh, think in new ways about city leadership and what does elected leadership and what do city departments bring to a grassroots movement. And we um, are testing. We're in year three of testing this hypothesis that we we, we see playing out. We're municipal leadership and city leadership can really show up to this issue and move the needle and so that we can get further faster with connecting children to nature across an entire city. And we have, um, we have currently, we have a cohort of seven cities that we've selected out of 43 applicants, very rigorous application process, but we got 43 cities to apply. And, um, yeah, it's, it, it was very successful out of the gate, which speaks to the urgency and the need that people feel in um, losing our children to media and losing our children to testing. Um, yes. we, you know, we, we care about the child, we care about the family, and we care about the community. And um, this project in particular is geared toward providing more equitable access to nature for low-income communities of color. So it has a very specific focus. And out of those 43 cities, we selected 16 cities to attend leadership academies. And we, we brought in teams from, uh, from all 16 cities to um, these leadership academies. One was in St. Paul. The other was in Salt Lake City. And the cities brought te- brought uh, representatives from the mayor's office, representatives sometimes from the park department, often from public health and schools. And so these cross-sector teams came together. And um, among other cities, we planned and we thought through some of the key strategies that might be deployed in cities to connect children to nature better. And um, from those leadership academies, we then... Um, selected seven cities that we wanted to work with more intensively to do real um, citywide deep planning with them. And so we've been working for two years now with those seven cities. And I'm happy to go into detail about some of the things that they're doing. There's some really amazing things happening there. But the, the real beauty of it is that Um, nature belongs to every single thing that we do. It's as relevant to um, the transportation folks as it is to the politicians, as it is to the doctors and the teachers and the moms and the dads. 
um, it really resonates with everyone and it belongs to everyone and can really um, work toward community-wide healing. Can you, can you can you give us uh, some of the details? I, I'd really like to hear, like in X city, they are doing X and the kids are going to, to this particular place. Yeah, I, I, I certainly can. I, I love to talk about the work at the cities in, in the cities because they're, they're really coming up with innovative strategies that, that make a lot of sense. So um, I'll start with St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, St. Paul, Minnesota has an amazingly passionate mayor, uh, Mayor Chris Coleman. He is passionate about nature. He gives talks about how important it is for children to be connected to nature. And and his framework is largely um, destination, big adventure nature experiences and those big transformational experiences that children can have on those trips. Um, And and when we brought this initiative to um, Mayor Coleman's city, there were lots of things happening on the ground in those uh, city parks and even in libraries. So we we started a um, an initiative there called the uh, Nature Smart Libraries, where uh, the the librarians, which are kind of unsuspected, sus- you know, you know, they're they're unlikely suspects for nature. They're they read books to children and they check out books, right? Right. <laughs> but. But librarians, especially these days, are very connected to the needs of the community. And so uh-huh. we, we, we piloted um, this Nature Smart Libraries initiative at the Sun Ray Library, which is a perfect name for a, a Nature Smart Library, the Sun Ray Library. And in that community, there were there um, it really serves a very diverse community of Somali, Hmong, Latinos, African Americans, um, and uh, the community really came together to say, "Yeah, this matters to us." And this park that we have next to the library, we don't really go there that much. We don't really know what there is to do there. And so, in that partnership with um, the Saint Paul, the city of Saint Paul. They forged a relationship between uh, and a, par- a deeper partnership in that neighborhood between the parks department and the libraries, and they um, there's a there was a model that emerged around uh, deep community engagement in the library and and using the library as a springboard to get folks out into that park. Uh, a university showed up and said, "Hey, we want to put in a pollinator garden." in that big space that's just got nothing in it right now. So there was so now there's all these opportunities for pollinator education that emerged. Well all of a sudden the the bee lab that's at the University of Minnesota said, oh, we want to show up and we want to put bees out there. So now there's all of this pollinator activity that's happening there. And the librarians are checking out adventure backpacks to families who then are able to go to other places around the city to experience their near their nearby nature. Um, and the activities around this Nature Smart Library continue to grow. Um, and the library then becomes a hub uh, for nature exposure, for just information, but also really getting those families out, out into nature. So that's one example of so, so many um, that are working toward some of the other strategies. We have some some cities are working on youth leadership. Others are very deeply engaged in green schoolyards, which is one of our primary strategies that the cities have chosen. Um, and we also have some that are activating their out-of-school time networks, which is really those youth-serving programs that happen in after-school weekends and summers. There's um, early childhood is another big theme among some of the cities, especially Madison and San Francisco. Yeah. Are the low-income <laughs> kids actually checking out the backpacks and actually going on adventures? Do you have statistics that show that they're actually taking advantage of these wonderful things? That is one of the projects that we're working on now is the metrics around this. So how do you measure how people are accessing nature? This is a not an obvious thing. If you have a backpack checkout program, well, okay, that data can be available and we are collecting that. And yes, they are checking them out and using them. Um, but, but when you think about families, you know, encouraging families to go to a park, say, um, there's... N- 
it, it's a complicated matter to understand park usage and park participation. And then certainly once it becomes amplified, you really want to know the before and the after. So we're working on um, an evaluative framework uh, where cities can then look at all of the different ways that they can connect children to nature and begin to measure those with real tools that we're um, looking to provide this fall. We're building a resource hub for all of the cities. That's Very really cool. amazing. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about what your organization also did in Texas, bringing other, or- bringing other groups together. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love about the work that you're doing, that your organization is doing, is that you know, you find yourself maybe on the same side as the um, the folks who are out enjoying the wilderness and who want to make sure that they preserve their right to bear arms, right? Sometimes <laughs> we think that nature and um, uh, more conservative folk might be at odds with each other, but the example that you have, and if, I'd love it if you could share it with all of us, mm-hmm. dispels that rumor and that myth. I really appreciate that question, Chris, because I... I think that nature, more than any social issue that we could probably touch on, is the the most uh, benign in terms. It, it, no one can really disagree that we we need to be connected to nature. <laughs> no one wants children to be plugged into media all day long. That n- n- nobody wants that. And so I really feel that nature is that bridge, and it's a connection that everyone has inside of them innately. Um, We are uh, biophilic is a phrase that was coined by E.O. Wilson. Um, We are biophilic by nature. We are one with nature. It comes from us. But then also there are so many memories that can be evoked of people who come from every single culture, every single political persuasion, it's a very diverse uh, cross-section of uh, advocates that we have that come to us and integrate this into their lives. And so um, in Texas, I, I'm, a, I'm a tried and true Texan, native Texan, go back many, many generations, all the way back to the Republic. Um, and uh, there is a very interesting relationship between uh, the conservative, more conservative, conservation-oriented um, hunters and fishers, um, and and the landowners are very important. I mean, in Texas, there are you know 98% of the land is privately owned, um, and so that's a very important um, aspect to our work. When you come into a state like Texas, you have to acknowledge that the land is mostly private, and so how do you engage the private citizens and the private landowners? in that um in in the movement um and and of course you, there are so many who also advocate for and um love the public land access and we have so many urban areas here in texas as well and so there is this urban rural connection that happens and when we um when the Children in Nature Network started, it was really about fueling grassroots change by creating grassroots coalitions. And Texas took up that banner. They said, we are all in on this. And so the Texas Children in Nature uh, partnership was developed. And that partnership was very cross-sector, very politically diverse. And um, has really appealed to so many folks across all of the urban and rural continuum. And we, you know, in Texas, when the Texas Children in Nature plan was launched, we also created an environmental literacy plan along with that. And uh, Laura Bush, First Lady, uh, former First Lady Laura Bush, um, was the keynote speaker at the launch of the environmental literacy plan. And it was very important for the state of Texas to have that kind of leadership represented from the, you know, obviously a very conservative constituent base um, and very much representing uh, private landowners in her own work, but very much a, a conservationist. She's focused on monarch butterflies right now, and it has a huge campaign across the state to save the monarch. Um, and of course, all of the environmental groups and the educators and the 
um, public health professionals and all of the other folks were all very much behind it as well. So it's an interesting uh, bridge that nature provides in communities and states and actually nationally as well. You know, with so much division in our country right now and, and in the world, as, uh, for that matter, it is so heartening to me to hear about a, a network, a project, a program, a vision, a mission that you have that unites everyone. <laughs> I mean, it really does. It unites us all, and it, it really relates to the principles of the innerrevolution.org, which are oneness, accountability, and mutual support. You know, your program encapsulates all of those that, you know, the idea of oneness bringing together, for instance, the landowners and uh, public agencies and the the population, both wealthy and poor, and the accountability because you're teaching environmental program, you know, you're teaching environmental issues mm-hmm. so that, you know, we are accountable. We are going to have to preserve this land for the, for the future, as well as we have to get the kids off their rear ends and out in nature, or who is going to be the future, Margaret? <laughs> you know that, that is absolutely that is absolutely right. And and you know I, I I often say that with with all of the discourse that is uh, has this sort of the flames are fanned right now around all of this uh, po- politicized division right now, and I really do feel like we have to find simple tools that belong to all of us for coming together. We have to come together. And I do believe that parks, nature, caring, who doesn't care about a monarch butterfly? There's nothing political about that. And then, and, and then yet, once you get into it, you realize that it really does matter to everyone. And we can come together to not only get our children connected and we all want our children connected to nature and and then by doing so the hope is that those children will develop a relationship with the land with um, the wildlife and the water so that they can steward and care for our earth at, you know as they as they grow older and whatever they do right. um, you know we often say I, I really do believe that nature provides a venue, like even physically being in nature um, has been shown to really uh, amplify connections among people. Children show up as much more cooperative with one another. They have much more constructive play and exploratory play. Mm-hmm. And they they cooperate better on playgrounds when there is nature, when nature is included in those playgrounds. And we know that with family time, it's similar. When families can go into nature, they know how to connect with one another in natural ways. And I really believe that uh, all of the divisions that we see, certainly they can't be all solved by going into nature, but nature can be a tool in our toolbox and can be a real venue for us as we look to make those connections with each other. I love that. Oh, you know, I wish I yeah. wish we could have big conventions, you know, <laughs> that would happen. Bring all the politicians and take them out to a, a beautiful national park and leave them there for a weekend. I I, I think you're so right that there's yeah, something. Go walk barefoot. Go walk barefoot right. in the park for half an hour before you talk about the contentious issues. Right. There's, you mentioned spirituality earlier, Margaret, and I, I feel like that's really what you're talking about is that there, there is a real energy of oneness that comes over us when we're out in nature. And I know I'm a counselor by trade and that the research lately shows how much being in nature helps to dissipate depression. It, it does, Helen. And, you know, we see so many mental health benefits from nature. Um, and, you know, certainly stress is reduced, relationships are repaired and able to be facilitated in nature. We see so many social emotional skills among children that are amplified and increased when, when they can be in nature. That cooperative spirit that I, that I mentioned, the, the research is very clear that children's mental health is better. And just the stress reduction alone 
is so important. So many of the children who we are prioritizing in our work are living in very um, high concentrated areas of poverty and, and barren of nature. So there's a direct correlation between um, what, what we consider green space and park deserts um, and uh, poverty. And of course, when you don't have a proper place to play, you're not going to be as well as the child who does have a proper place to play. And that nature-rich environment can really support child well-being and that reduction of stress is so important, especially to children in poverty. And children, all children are stressed out these days. You know, they're on these little devices, mine included. Um, and, and the school environment, it doesn't allow them enough time outside for play oftentimes. And parents are often afraid of sending their children outdoors for legitimate reasons and perceived and real safety issues. Um, and I think that with all of that, the children need to play and they need to play in beautiful places that have nature in them so that they can be okay. Um, yes. And it, mm-hmm. you I know, just, it I have reminded a couple of questions. And before we run out of time, I, I, I'd like to just ask you a few questions that take us in a slightly different direction. Sure. Um, because certainly the, the, there's so much that you've done and so much that your organizations is involved in. Could you tell us if you've had any, um, any uh, success working with communities and law enforcement to use the neighborhood parks to foster mutual trust? Yeah, that's a really great question. That, that question came up today um, in a conversation with um, the San Fran- city of San Francisco. And um, there is a very concerted effort among park agencies and schools to facilitate that safety. Um, Oftentimes, and, and, and we often talk about it in terms of perceived safety issues and real safety issues. We, we know that there is real crime happening in real places, and some of these parks provide a venue for some of that. But also there is a newfound parental culture around fearing, um, you know, fearing for your child's life if they go outdoors in your front yard to play. So there is a very interesting culture that has developed among parents the last few years. And so law enforcement does play a central role in creating a sense of um, a sense of security in some ways. But we also have to make sure that that law enforcement agency is not also preventing uh, children of color and especially teen children of color uh, from feeling welcome in those parks. And so there's a real interesting dynamic there um, where we're working with our cities to really excavate some of those racial tensions that we see. And certainly that has been brought into the limelight in the media this year in big ways that I know you all have worked um, to pr- report on. And we're, we're really hoping that through concerted efforts that law enforcement and communities and children can all feel safe together and provide, you know, have each other's backs. Um, there was an example mentioned today out of San Francisco where the schools are opening up their schoolyards for community access, which is, of course, wonderful. Those are public lands. Those public schools have public lands, and we want communities be able to use those, especially if they're rich with nature and play environments. We want community access to those. And so when the children show up the next morning to school, we have to be sure that those places haven't, you know, had criminal activity or anything in the middle of the night. So we want to be sure that those places are safe places for children and families and for the school day the next day. And so there's a relationship building in San Francisco among the the police department and those schools and opening those school grounds up as a great example. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's, my son is 14, uh, he actually just turned 15, and you cross that line between are they a child or a teenager? And, you know, many mm-hmm. of us feel a little bit more anxious around teenagers. And um, mm-hmm. I don't think of teenagers as being children anymore. So, it, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. I, I understand what you're saying, that teenagers need to feel safe to go into the parks and adults need to encourage it and, they need to have something to do, and, and they need green space as well as the children. 
One thing they else do. I've been working on in, in various facets is cross-cultural exchange and community-based youth leadership. Could mm-hmm. you talk to us about that a little bit? I'm really interested in the cross-cultural aspect and how that, you know, um, meshes with the, the green space and the parks. Yeah, I, I can definitely talk about that. So the the youth leadership piece is, is an important piece of the puzzle here because it's really through um, engaging the, the young people for in the millennial generation and on down have an awareness, have a social awareness that is really profound. And, and when they are empowered to lead, when they are empowered to make social change, they can do anything. And they can become real facilitators of social change in neighborhoods, in cities, and communities. And so we do invest in um, our program called Natural Leaders, which invests in uh, young, diverse leaders from ages 18 to 29, where um, our Natural Leaders team really infuses energy into these trainings where those, those young people come out ready to make social change with nature, not as the center of it. They're not going to go plant a bunch of trees, which they might want to do, but it's really, as I spoke of before, using nature as a venue and as a platform for that kind of social change that they want to see um, in their community. And so um, one of the, one of the things that, um, that has been happening in these spaces is that people are coming together. I'll use the example of, of Oakland where the um, uh, East Bay Regional Park District puts on these multicultural walks um, for their communities. And they've hired a full-time person, this wonderful woman named Mona Coe, who has built over five years, she's built relationships in the Chinese community, in the Korean American community, in the African American community, in the Latino community. And she brings all of these people together on these multicultural walks. And there are children and families involved. And the, the, um, the Muslim community is very engaged. And so Mona, they have also partnered with the um, with the hospital system in the community, where Dr. Nusheen Razani has now uh, systematized a park prescription program, where her very very low income patients are being prescribed nature. They have transportation provided to these beautiful parks, and in these in these places, in these amazingly beautiful parks these cross-cultural exchanges began to, to come to fruition. And I remember one of Mona's stories was around uh, there being a, uh, a Zumba class happening in the park, one of those free fitness Zumba classes. And then the, the Chinese Americans came and said, let's do some meditation together. And let's do, and th- there was this incredible cross-cultural exchange among the participants in, in the events. And they became friends and they were able to really understand each other and their cultures better and differently because of the, the coming together in, in nature. It just facilitates that. You want to laugh, you want to play, you want to learn new things. It opens you up to others. I, I loved that idea when I read it on your website about the prescriptions mm-hmm. for nature. Mm-hmm. I thought that was priceless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of doctors um, of all sorts, I would say healthcare providers of all sorts, and Helen, you being a mental health professional, you can understand this, and certainly the, nature tell, the research tells us nature is not only intuitively good for you, it's, you know, the research has to show to us, and we know it now, that scientifically, nature is really good for us, it improves our health, it improves our well-being, it improves our eyes, it improves our vitamin D levels, it increases our physical activity. Um, when we're outdoors, we're more active. It's just that simple. And then, of course, all of the social, emotional, and stress reduction that I spoke of before um, and the re- improved relationship skills matter to our health. Um, so we've, we've really seen doctors and all kinds of healthcare providers and the mental health professionals as well come to this and say, we know this is good 
for my patients. Now, how do we do it? How do we get them to go into nature? What is the mechanism by which we do this? And so, um, yeah, there are some park prescription programs out there that are popping up all over the country um, that are, are so many now. We've created a national coalition to you know, coordinate and make sure that we're all learning from one another around these park prescription programs. Something that occurred to me earlier in the conversation that for a lot of the lower income children and teenagers, they feel so alienated from society Mm -hmm. and that taking them out into nature and helping them, reminding them that they are part of something so huge and so magical that is, like you said, available to everybody. It belongs to everybody. Mm-hmm. I, I hope has that impact that reminds them that they do belong and that nobody can take that away from them and that they take that back into their experiences when they return home to their urban settings, that they do belong to something bigger. And the relaxation and that sense of belonging can help so much in their socialization. Uh, That's right, Helen. We, you know, we we see so often those those children who feel alienated, pushed aside. And and honestly, the children in in Providence, Rhode Island, when they were asked to um, draw pictures of what their experience in nature was or in parks, so many of them drew pictures of trash, um, which just breaks my heart to think of them experiencing the outdoors and experiencing how how what they see nature as as full of trash and that that provides a mirror for them for how they're being cared for so we don't want that we're working really hard with that city to say how can we belong how can we create a sense of belonging and ownership of these beautiful public spaces and so when children go away into what we what we consider big nature there is that transformational experience of oneness and belonging and part of the ecosystem and the birds and the bees and the trees and the big sky and the night sky is incredible. Um, And how do we carry that back to the city with those children? Well, we do it by working with city leaders to make sure that nature is in every single aspect of a child's life in the spaces in which they live. So that schoolyard cannot be asphalt. It has to be an ecosystem. The community park cannot have trash in it and make people, children, feel that their city doesn't care for them or that 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 space is trash or that they're trash, they live in trash. We don't want that for our children. So we're working so hard to make sure that children have a sense of belonging in those spaces as part of an ecology, as part of an ecosystem of belonging. Um, that is just so beautiful. Margaret, we just have a few more minutes left. Would you like to leave our listeners with some ideas about that, how they can get involved with your organization in their community, how they can create a family nature club in their area? Absolutely. So um, the Children in Nature Network is is really um, about inspiring anyone to get into nature. And so I invite you, you know, as organizations do, we have a website, which is often a portal to all kinds of good things. So um, at childrenandnature.org, all one word, and and is spelled out, childrenandnature.org, we have a host of resources that can help you understand understand the research on this, help you understand how to get involved. One of the easy and quick ways to do it is, well, to just go outdoors, obviously, but then we also have grassroots family nature clubs, as Chris mentioned. Um, And those family nature clubs are not meant to be hyper-organized and hard to do or anything. They're meant to just be some people getting together and going outside. And when children become part of a family nature club, that um, there is a peer inspiration that happens and there's a safety in numbers that families often feel. It's, it's interesting. Families don't often, especially younger parents who didn't have maybe as much nature exposure as others, 
um, they often fear for children just playing in an unstructured way. So I think it's important for us to think about encouraging each other and coming together in these ways. And Family Nature Clubs is one of the tools that can um, help do that for sure. And then we have lots of other resources on, on the website for how to get involved. We can certainly, you can sign up for our newsletter and there's all kinds of inspiration that comes from that. Well, I want to say that you have reminded me to remind all my clients mm-hmm. <laughs> how important it is to get out in nature. You know, even though I do it every day, mm-hmm. I don't remember to encourage them to do it every day. So you've you've caused me to have an inner revolution by <laughs> you being here today, Margaret. Well, thank you so much, Helen. You know, the, the inner revolution, uh, it definitely radiates out to those around us and radiates out to our community, to our neighborhood, to our city, and then uh, to our country and to the world. So I appreciate the work that you all do to focus on how we can all be connected and how we all are connected as one. And certainly nature is a is a easy plug and play for how to um, how to get connected to ourselves and to others. Yes, and what a wonderful conversation. I, I need to let people know what we're going to do next week. Um, the title of the show next week, and Beth Green will be the host, is From Resistance to Revolution, Escaping the Tyranny of the Political Pendulum, a conversation between Beth Green and myself, Helen Hillix. Many people are angry about the policies of the new U.S. government, and the word resistance is on many people's tongues. But is resistance enough? How would this resistance be different from the right-wing resistance to President Obama when the other side felt excluded and disenfranchised, which in turn helped swing the pendulum to Trump? How can we most, how can we, I'm sorry, how can we move past divisive, politics where the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth problems don't get resolved and a lot of folks get hurt is it possible to free ourselves from the tyranny of the pendulum go beyond resistance and achieve a revolutionary shift in the foundation of society tune into this show where co-host beth green and james maynard talk with helen hillix co-director of outreach of the innerrevolution.org and learn more about what some people are doing to overcome the tyranny of the pendulum swing and to bring about the historic changes we need for a better world. Call if you can. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Mark. Hopefully we'll see you all next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.